Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. If, uh, if you weren't here last week and didn't get a chance to hear, my name is Beth Kuchenberger. I'll be with you all month this month as Phil has a chance to have a sabbatical. And during this month that I'm with you, we're going to be studying the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, where we read the letters specifically to the church, the churches that Paul would have planted earlier that John was writing a letter to, will follow along the postal route. And in uh, 2014, my husband and I had a chance to go to biblical Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, to study those ruins and to study that journey. And I can remember thinking then what I'm thinking today, the letters that John would write to those churches are just as relevant in 2021 as they were in those days. That what we're experiencing now, is there's really nothing new under the sun. And uh, as I've interacted with some of you this week after last week's message, some of you were asking me like, okay, so we're in the book of Revelation. Are you going to address end times? Are we in the end times? Is that what we're going to talk about? And um, I just want to let you know, Phil and I did not get, I didn't get any kind of approval to talk about end times with you all. Um, and, And the truth is the Old Testament, for all its history of Israel, for all the books of poetry and the 12 prophets, the Old Testament is pointing to and telling us about the coming of Jesus. And the New Testament is all about Jesus. And the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. We read Revelation wondering what it means about our life and what we can expect. But, the, but that book was written to help us understand who Jesus is. He's the star of every single story and he loves us like crazy. And he writes the letter to the, today we're going to um, study the church of Sardis. If last week was Ephesus and it was about love and how love is how they, you know, they were rescuing babies and free and slaves and making a dent in that giant New York City kind of Ephesus world. This week is going to be about boldness in a very, very dark place. And I, I, I want, since Jesus is the star of the story, I want to introduce um, maybe an idea about how he introduced himself to us by being willing to enter into a really dark place. So just do a little little biblical math with me. In the book of Luke chapter one, we read about Zachariah and Elizabeth, a married couple. Zachariah was a priest. Those priests had duty one month of the year and Zachariah's priestly duty was in June. And he was married to a woman named Elizabeth and it says in our Bibles that they got pregnant after his priestly duties, so let's just say July. And Elizabeth was the first cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the baby that Zachariah and Elizabeth got pregnant with was John the Baptist, the one that was coming to prepare the way for Jesus. So six months into that pregnancy, Elizabeth runs into her cousin, Mary, who was freshly impregnated with Jesus. And it says those babies in their bellies leapt in response. They were so, they recognized each other even in utero. So six months later, They would have run into each other at Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights, meaning that the light of the world, don't let this mess up your Christmas calendar, but the light of the world was conceived during the Festival of Lights. I love that idea. Assuming Mary carried that baby uh, full term, 
then Jesus would have been born probably around the Feast of the Tabernacles or Sukkoth, which was the time that that would have been early fall after harvest. It was the one time of year, and well, in fact, two of the gospel writers would say Jesus came and he tabernacled among us, kind of further nodding to that timing. But it's the one time of year when the shepherd was allowed with his animals into the field. Normally, you would never want shepherds in the field because then they would eat the crops. That's not a good idea. But after harvest season, the farmer would invite the shepherd to bring his animals into the field. They were to eat the, the crops that were left over that didn't get harvested. And their expectation is that they, those animals would then leave like a little deposit in the fields, fertilizing it for the next growing season, right? And it was in those fields, we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, that there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night, when of course the angels came and made the great big beautiful announcement. But I want you to imagine those shepherds, like, what did they do with their animals at night? Because animals don't just like lay down and go to sleep in a nice little circle when you tell them to. I mean, they would have had, and I don't know what your nativity scenes look like that you put up at your house at Christmas time, but shepherds were very practical and they would have used something we would call maybe a sheepfold. They would have used like, uh, it, would, it would look like a cave to us today. They would find some kind of cleft in the rock where three of the four walls were natural barriers. So they would have put all those animals, all those sheep and goats into that cave. They would have lit a fire in the mouth of the cave, which would have kept the animals inside and would have warmed up that shepherd as he curled around it and slept for the night. And I just, I want you to use your imagination with me for a minute, even if you have to close your eyes. What would the walls look like with the soot from a thousand shepherd fires? I, I moved my grill yesterday, had soot in my fingers I couldn't get off for almost an hour. Imagine Year after year, fire after fire, soot after soot after soot after soot, those walls would have been black. And then imagine those animals in that cave, night after night, year after year, nobody's cleaning that cave at the end of the season or anything. The floor would have been thick with animal dung. I almost can't think of a nastier, stinkier, messier, blacker place and here comes Mary, pregnant. We know the Christmas story. No room at the end. Where's she got to go? She's got to go where the animals are. And Jesus decided, the light of the world decided to come and tabernacle with us in the darkest place you can possibly imagine. Because he was sending a message to them then and us today. There is literally no place he won't go. There is literally no story too dark, too messy, too nasty that, he won't, that he's not willing to go and tabernacle among them, which is really good because the place we're going to talk about in Sardis was a very dark place. And Jesus was going to send his disciples out to this very dark place. I told you last week, until I went to Turkey in 2014, my whole Christian life, I thought Jesus sent his disciples who took the good news to places where they didn't have good news. And they just made announcements like, hey, you know, services are at 9, 30, and 11. Come here about someone who's going to save you from your sin. Come here and learn about someone who walked on water and fed 5,000. But God is going to send these disciples into this very, very dark place. Remember last week, if you, if you weren't here, you can listen to it online. But I'm going to share with you three pieces that aren't that like, like a movie that doesn't always kind of sew up how it, all the pieces are connected till the end. I'm going to sew for you three pieces that will make sense when we read the passage in Revelation that John wrote to the church of Sardis. And the first piece that I want to talk to you about is that Sardis was a city who was known for their fascination with death and dying. 
the city, which would have been called the Acropolis, and their cemetery, which was called the Necropolis, looked exactly the same. They built over 120 pyramids in this city, and John would pick a city obsessed with dying to address the idea of death in his letter. Part of the reason they were obsessed with death is they did have a series of earthquakes that rocked them early um, that first century. In 17 AD, they had an earthquake that killed 100,000 people and everyone was afraid. And they went and lived among the tombs in the hills because they didn't feel safe. And they went out in those tombs in the hills and they didn't almost come out for 40 years. They had this traumatic experience as a culture and they didn't they didn't really recover. In fact, that traumatic experience defined their culture going forward. In 2010, there was a uh, back-to-back works in Haiti, and Haiti had an earthquake about that same size in the start of 2010. By the end of 2010, I had a chance to visit there, and now even a decade later, there are some Haitians that won't go on the second floor of a building. There are some that when they start to feel something that reminds them of what it felt like on that day, they get emotionally triggered. That's what, it, that's what these folks were looking like. And I, I, I was studying Stardust and thinking to myself, my heavens, we as a culture have ha- just come through a very dramatic experience. And if we aren't careful, we're going to keep hiding out in the caves. And I'm not talking about being reckless and I'm not talking about being unsafe, but I am talking about we cannot stay comfortable. Are we doing now as a culture what has become comfortable? Because history looks back on Sardis and they can't believe they lived among the dead for 40 years as if they already were. But if Jesus is asking us to look like him and talk like him and engage like him and reflect him and love like him and extend like him, we're going to have to come out of our metaphorical caves. This is the season, perfect season, to reset our rhythm and our priorities. The people of Sardis shrunk back when tragedy struck them, and I want us to be a people that rises up. John will, thank you. John will write in the letter, strengthen what remains and rebuild. And that feels as relevant to me in July of 2021 as any passage in my Bible. Strengthen what remains and rebuild. The second little fact I want to tell you about Sardis is there was an idiom that used the name Sardis. Conquering Sardis was an idiom that meant doing something impossible, doing the impossible. 500 years, it comes from this story, I'm going to tell you. From 500 years before Christ, there was a king, maybe you remember him from history class, King Croesus, wealthiest king. You know, he, the reason he was so wealthy is he figured out a way to use sheep fleece to pan for gold in local rivers, and he got a lot of it. And with all that money, King Croesus built this impenetrable wall around Sardis. You couldn't get in. And everybody, of course, wanted to get in because that's what happens. You want his gold. You wanted the, the gold of King Croesus. And Cyrus, who was p- from representing Persia, camped around Sardis and was looking for where is the weakness so that I can, in a military sense, dominate and go in and steal his gold and take over. And they couldn't figure out a way to go in. And then this is a true story. What happened one night was a, a Lydian soldier, Lydian would be with King Croesus, a soldier was sitting up on top of the wall and he started to fall asleep the way you would on a night watch, I would assume. And his, when his head bobbed, his helmet fell off. And the soldier that's representing Cyrus is looking at this soldier up on the wall whose helmet fell off. 
and thinking, how's he going to come down and get it? And then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, he appears, retrieves his helmet, goes back in what they now realized was a secret door, and went back up on his perch thinking nobody saw, hallelujah, I fell asleep on the job. But that soldier was watching and did see and went and told Cyrus, I think there's a secret door because I saw this guy get down here and he didn't walk in, in any of the ways that you could visibly see. And so they then circled around and uh, Cyrus decided to mount an invasion in the cover of nightfall and some special forces went into that, through that secret door. And what they found was all the Lydians were fast asleep. And that night, invincible Sardis fell. And then crazy when you read history, 400 years later, it happened again. This time, who cares about who the people are, but somebody was trying to conquer the same impenetrable wall. And they did this military tactic, I think is fascinating. They took a dead donkey and they threw it over the wall because they knew it would attract vultures. All the vultures came and began to eat the donkey. Then the vultures went up and perched on the wall where there were not soldiers guarding it because if there was a person there, a soldier there, the vulture would have gone and found someplace else. So where the vultures perched, they knew were unguarded spots in the wall. And of course, the next night they went in, went over the places they knew were unguarded. And for the second time, they found the citizens of Sardis asleep and they conquered Sardis for the second time. They fell because of a lack of watchfulness. And we'll read in the letter how he's going to talk about the thief in the night. And he's, he's kind of digging at them about their history using a cultural context, a cultural clue that they would represent. They let their guard down and my husband, uh, I met him when we were in high school. I went to King's High School. He went to, like he likes to say, a small private high school called Madeira. Uh, and uh, he played basketball for Madeira. And um, this was a long time ago, and I know this is not the case anymore. But at the time, Madeira was dominating their basketball league, and they beat easily every time they faced them the school of Deer Park. I now know that Deer Park is fabulous at basketball, so you don't need to find me afterwards. But this was a long time ago, and Madeira was a ra routinely beating them. And so he told the story one day to our staff team that what would happen is they would go out at the beginning of their, of their game against Deer Park, and they'd be goofing off and not giving it their best and kind of assuming that it was going to be an easy win. And at halftime, they were always down because they hadn't really been putting the effort forward they should and their coach would yell at them and remind them how they were capable of and their talent and their skills and their plays and all the things that coaches tell you at halftime and they would come out have to work twice as hard in order to beat them and so he was telling our staff team about how we can't just ever get lazy we can't ever just go out and wing it or go through the motions or put forth half of our effort we don't and, and in our organization we now have an idiom we can't go out there and deer park it so I'm so sorry if you live in deer park but that's but it what that idea represents is you got to put forth your best effort all the time and do everything that you can you can't go out and deer park it and in many ways the community of Sardis kind of deer parked it they, they were just assuming, we got the impenetrable wall, nothing's going to happen to us. But that's, of course, not what happened. The third fact I want to tell you about is the people of Sardis were in love with a goddess named Kibbola. And I don't want to give her too much time, frankly, on a Sunday morning in a church like ours to tell you about the faith around Kibbola. I'll tell you a little bit about her. They believed her to be both male and female. Um, and the way that she was worshipped was through the flogging of, our, of the bodies and through some pretty extraordinary sexual depravity. Um, about once a year for 40 days, 
a million people would gather in Sardis who believed and loved Kibbola. And I brought a picture um, of her temple. So this is just a picture I took with my iPhone when I was in Sardis. But to the right of the picture, those two tall stacks, that all that white is the ruins of a temple that was built to Kibla. And what would happen is 40 days every year, a million people would come and they would do this festival for her and they would march around that white building and they would dress in all white. And they would flog themselves over and over and over again until their robes were bloody. And they would try to get their blood on each other. And the bloodier the robes, the holier you were. And in the meantime, during those 40 days, they participated in all kinds of sexual depravity that I'm not going to talk about this morning. But I just want you to imagine in the end, if you want to be one of her priests, you would castrate yourself on the 40th day and offer your body to this goddess. And it was a great honor to your family. So just whatever your imagination needs to do, imagine a million people flogging themselves and doing crazy town and they're marching around the temple. And then here come the disciples, right? They had just... They have just witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection and great commission. And they're taking the good news around the earth. And they show up in Sardis. And are you kidding me, you people? Like, you're hurting yourself? Like, services are at 9.30 and 11? It's not going to cut it. (laughs) And if if you were a Christian and you showed up here and these people are doing crazy things, what would you want to do? You'd be like... I'm going to set up church like seven meters out of, seven miles out of town. Feel free to join us if you want to. If this ever gets old, you can find us out there. But the reason I want to show you this picture, this, this is what I want you to remember most about Sardis. The, the, the brick building on this left side of the picture is an is a evangelical church. That when Christians came to this community, they didn't park themselves seven miles out of town. They literally got as close as they could to the temple. And the shape of the building tells us, thanks to archaeologists, that it was a medical clinic. Because guess what those people needed? Band-aids, right? I mean, like, (laughs) they were hurting themselves. This is the way this church decided to take gift cards and food boxes over to Steinmart to see a, a, a felt need in their community and decide, you know what looks like Jesus? To go to the darkest places you can possibly imagine and bring the love of, of Christ. And eventually what would happen is that faith, the Kibbeleh faith would fall and Christ's faith, the Christian faith would rise in that community. They were practical. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, I was a missionary for 15 years in Mexico. And the story I'm going to tell you is the story of how a church parked itself right next to the darkest places that were happening in my city at the time. I moved to Mexico in 1997. And the story I'm going to tell you happened in 2011. So at this point, my family, like, we're practically Mexican, right? I I eat hot sauces of every flavor. And we watch soccer more than we watch football. Like, we, we we were fully embedded in that culture. And in 2011... There was a cartel war that was happening that was getting, gaining national attention and that made our otherwise pretty normal city. I mean, it was 6 million people, so a big city, but it made it, I mean, terrorized. In fact, as the imbalance happened in the cartel war and they began to war with each other in very public places, people were afraid to get in their crossfires and the taco stands closed at night and there was no more even nighttime soccer leagues. And you know if you're in Mexico and you're not playing soccer and you're not eating tacos, there's something going on. 
In 2011, we had 1,872 assassinations in the city as a result of the cartel war. And it was pretty much on lockdown. You, people weren't going out at night at all. And in the summer of 2011, a friend of mine who was a pastor had a dream. And he woke up from the dream and he told his wife, I just dreamt that I was praying over some police officers. She said, I don't, I don't know any police officers. And I want you to hear me loud and clear. I love the police force in this city. I love the police force in this country. But the way that we appreciate and respect law enforcement in the United States is not the way it is all the way around the world. And they didn't, they didn't know anybody in the police force. They didn't know who they could even trust in the police force to go talk to about this dream that he had that he was praying so he saw a couple of weeks later a couple of police officers eating at a restaurant where he was enjoying a meal and he decided to pick up their tab in order to hopefully get an introduction and see if they would like him to pray for them. And when he picked up their tab, they came storming over because they thought he was trying to bribe them. And he's like, okay, Lord, how about you bring them to me because I can't go to them. And then at church... In August of 2011, he was preaching and his elder passed him a note and it said, the building is surrounded by police. Uh, why don't you keep everyone in here for another 20 minutes or so? And that was pretty typical. In those days, you could be at the grocery store, the movie theater, the shopping center. An incident could happen outside. They would lock you down wherever you were till the police could figure out and clean up whatever was happening. And then you could be released. So that pastor made the immediate assumption there had been an incident outside the church and he needed to keep everybody inside to be safe. And you don't have to tell many pastors they get to go again, right? So he started all over at the beginning. And then they passed him another note that said, um, it's free, it's free, to, it's free and clear. The new chief of police is in attendance this morning in the congregation and it's just his security detail. So that pastor did something I'm not going to do this morning, which is he said to everyone, is anybody new here today? I'd like you to come forward and I want to give you prayer. So 11 people came forward that Sunday and he was praying down the, the stage with them and he got to someone that he would later find out was the police chief and he whispered in his ear, the Lord told me that he saved your life for the season that you're entering in next. He, after the service, he was really excited to introduce himself. He's like, I had this dream and I was praying over police officers and can I come to your station and can I see if anybody would like any prayer? And he goes, well, you probably know I'm new, right? Because your police chief was uh, murdered last week and I just got here from Cancun. So in this big city of like 6 million people, there's like Monterey proper and then there's all these giant municipalities Think like Loveland and Mason and Madeira and Deer Park and Indian Hill and all those. Like, so this was, this was like a, a subset of Monterey, a community called Guadalupe, census to about a million people. And he, this was the police chief of Guadalupe. He's like, I just got here. I haven't met very many of the, of the force yet, but I haven't met anybody that I think would be interested in you praying over them. But my friend was pretty persistent and after several coffees talked him into the idea that uh, he could come and finally the chief was like, okay, I'll tell you what, Saturday morning at seven o'clock, the night shift and the day shift are together for 30 minutes for roll call and announcements. I'll give you five of those 30 minutes. You can say whatever you want to. So Salatiel got very excited. He went for the first time the fall of 2011. During those five minutes, he shared the basics of the gospel and told the story about how God loved them and had a plan for their life. And nobody responded or raised their hand or talked to him even afterwards, but he left that feeling very joyful because that's what happens. Joy follows obedience. When God asks you to do something, regardless of how people respond to what you've done, when you do what God asks you to do, joy results. And he was feeling very joyful. And he's like, can I come back next Saturday? And the guy was like, because I went so well today, you know, like. <laughs> 
But he did. He started to go every Saturday throughout the fall of 2011. And he was building a message one week after the next about how God loves them and sees them, has a plan for them. Into October, he was praying about what he was going to say that next Saturday. And he felt like the Lord told him he was to bring a worship pastor with him. And he was like, Lord, I only get five minutes. I have to give him two of them. And these people don't know our songs. I'm not even sure they know how to sing in unison. But he did it. October, November, December, two minutes of worship, three minutes of a message. We get into January of 2012. And at this point in the country, the National Guard had been called into Monterey. We were, it, things were increasingly getting worse. And, um, man, it was, it, was a, it was a bad scene. In January of 2012, on a Saturday morning, during the worship set, all of a sudden, one of the men fell over. And this is a room full of first responders. So they all assumed he had had some kind of heart attack. And he, they all just like ran over to him. But Salatiel, my pastor friend, and the police chief recognized that that man had become overcome in the Holy Spirit. And the chief was like, okay, well, I'm ready to admit that there's something going on that they're not willing to show or say or tell or confess or testify to. But something is happening in these men and women that we need to give, give opportunity for, give voice to. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to come every day of the month of February. And I'll, t- I'll give you as many minutes as I can of that roll call time. And let's teach them about the biblical character of David who was in adversity, who faced the enemy and battle and who was strong and trusted in the Lord and listened to what his voice. And he was like all excited and solitude. I was like, okay, I'll do it. So every day of February 2012, he went to that police station and taught every day about David um, and the truths of the, of the Bible. On the last day of February, they gave a certificate out to everyone for having participated in the leadership course. And the police chief made an announcement that everybody already knew, but it sure felt good to hear it. Up until that point, over the course of at least the last six months, probably the last eight months, the average loss of officer life was 25 officers a month were dying in this cartel war. The police chief made the announcement that the month of February 2012, not a single officer's life had been lost. So it wasn't like everybody was like, okay, let's go on to the book of Hosea, please. But they wanted whatever, like, good juju this guy was bringing, right? Like, I, like, I don't, I mean, we would call the Holy Spirit. They're like, we want, we, we want you to come back every day. This feels really good. And so I'll tell, if he was here, he'd tell you that March 1st, 2012 was when the whole story changed because he recognized he could not continue to sustain what he had been doing by himself. And so he invited a bunch of pastor friends together and he told them what he had been doing now for almost six months. And he told them, here's what I want to do. I got a calendar and I've just, I'm printed it off and I want you to sign up for different days and we're going to bring the gospel and worship to that place. And I don't want you to invite a single one of those people to your church because we're not going to bring them out to church. We're going to bring church to them. Just exactly like that video was talking about. We're going to bring church to them. And so March, April, May, June, different pastors in the community were going every day and ministering to the police force there in Guadalupe. And it was starting to get some press, not what they were doing, but what was getting press is the municipality of Guadalupe was having more arrests than the National Guard, which should not have been happening. And people were wondering, what's, who is this leader? What is happening in this police force that they would have such unprecedented victory? By the summer of 2012, things were coming back to normal. We were playing soccer again at night and eating tacos again at night. And in the fall of 2012, the town of Guadalupe elected a new mayor and that mayor gathered these community leaders together and said, hey, one of my first political like, tasks is I'm supposed to give the keys of the city to somebody. 
And I don't care which one of you all, you talk amongst yourself, who do you want to represent you? But I'd like someone from among your like little task force to be the recipient of the keys of the city. I know what it is that you've been doing and I want to honor it. And Salatiel was like, you'd like to know who it is that deserves the credit for what's been happening in Guadalupe? That's who you want to give the keys to the city to? He's like, yeah, yeah, whoever you all think. Salatiel so goes, well, that's, that's Jesus Christ. And the mayor was like, you'd like my first political act to be to give the keys of the city to Jesus Christ? <laughs> and they said yes. And in case you think I'm making it up, I brought a video with me of what happened that fall. Es por eso que hoy yo, César Garza Villarreal, presidente municipal de Ciudad Guadalupe, entrego la ciudad de Guadalupe, Nuevo León, a nuestro Señor Jesucristo. The best part of the video is that the people of Guadalupe cheered for the next eight minutes. And what happens at these events is in the front row are like dignitaries from the other places. So like the mayor of Madeira and the mayor of Montgomery and the mayor of Mason and the mayor of Loveland. And they're watching the people of Guadalupe go crazy over the keys given to Jesus Christ. And they're like, hey, my key thing's next week. I'm giving my keys to Jesus Christ, right? (laughs) And by the end of 2012, all the surrounding municipalities had given the keys of the city over to Jesus Christ and a movement was born. And the one place that hadn't falled, fall, fell was uh, Monterey proper. And in January of 2013, the police chief of Monterey proper called my friend Saltiel and asked him if he had five minutes free on Saturday to address the troops. And he went and stood before 1,400 police men and women and gave them the basics of the gospel. And afterwards I said, how'd it go? He's like, well, nobody raised their hand or anything. Nobody like talked or anything. And I said, I'm sorry. He's like, it's okay, I'm going to wait a few months and bring a guitar player. (laughs) And and in that summer, July of 2013, the mayor of, of Monterey stood in front of our Capitol steps and in front of a nationally televised audience, read an entire chapter out of the book of Isaiah and gave the keys of the city over to Jesus Christ. And it wasn't like everybody understood what was going on. In fact, our headline the next day said, if you turned on your water and it tasted like wine, you can thank the mayor. (laughs) But when I think about what we witnessed in Monterey that season, there's a couple of, of modern day examples of what the Jesus followers did when they got to Sardis. They made God the star of the story. They got as close to the darkness as they possibly could. They trusted God could do something, make a way when it didn't seem like there was going to be any way out of this story. Those Mexican brothers of mine gave us a clear map of what revolution and revival looks like. And I don't know anywhere that needs more revolution and revival than the cities that we're living in right now in this day and age. We need to bring Jesus in here. I love, I was just telling the staff this week how much I love the book of Exodus. I'm sure we'll probably get into some of the plagues at some point. I love to study the plagues. One of the plagues is called the plague of darkness. In Exodus chapter 10, it says that darkness fell over the land so thick you could feel it. But, which, I mean, can we, can we not feel the darkness right now? So thick we can feel it. And it says in that passage that everywhere that God's people went, light was among them. So again, using your imagination, what did that look like? 
The darkness was so thick and then like these little human lightning bugs, everywhere they went, light was among them. That's what it means to have Jesus tabernacling among us. Exodus 25, God gives instructions to Moses about how to build a tabernacle. Read it later on your own. Here's my paraphrase. He basically says, if you make room for me, I will come and fill the space. God is telling us today, July 2021, make room for me in the city. Make room for me in this neighborhood. Make room for me in this church. Make room for me in your family. Make room for me. This is what we need. And he will come and fill the space. And the light that comes in this space will overcome darkness. It's the biblical promise. We cannot break that promise. That's exactly what he says. If you're looking for an invitation from your church to go engage in the culture, here it is. And when you engage in the culture, what tools do you have? You have love like we talked about last week. You have scripture. You have service, you have prayer. This is what we're gonna need to do. We cannot run and camp out seven miles down the road. We've got to be as close to the darkness as possible so the light can overcome. So let's read this letter now to a people fascinated with death and dying who've been conquered two times in the night and who are living among this cult. Revelation chapter three says this. To the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. He's always giving us a chance to repent. Repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis. They've not soiled their clothes. They haven't gotten that, they're not bloodying themselves. They have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. Montgomery Community Church, wake up and strengthen what remains. Hold fast to the truth and repent. Don't stop paying attention, but be alert and get close enough to the darkness, get close enough to the chaos, but not so close you start to look like the lost or soil your clothes. We're gonna close here uh, with a song that was written by a Nigerian woman named Sinesh. Back-to-back works in Nigeria, so I have been in the country where she lives when she wrote this song. Nigeria is 50% Muslim, 50% Christian. The believers there are spiritual siblings on the other side of the world are having to make a decision every day what it looks like to pass out a Band-Aid when it's easier to judge or run away. And she writes a song to tell the church of Nigeria that God will make a way, that he's the light in the darkness. We're just the bearers of it. We're just the reflectors of it. We just make room for him in it. And as she taught that song to the church of Nigeria, it's caught on around the world. And I think it feels pretty relevant to us today because we need to know today that God will make a way. 
and that he will keep his promises and we can't break those. So as we close in prayer, I'd like to ask you to stand with me and I want you to hear me loud and clear. The Bible teaches us in several different places that it's man that looks at the outside, but God's always looking at the heart. So I don't care if you put your hands up or out or together or holding on to the person next to you. you do your, your exterior posture does not matter to me. What, what I care about is what's happening inside of your heart. So as we close your eyes, posture yourself before Jesus. Would you bow with me, Jesus? We will strengthen what remains. We will repent. We will bear your light. We will go to the darkness. It is with the power and authority I have as a co-heir with you together with these spiritual siblings of mine that I ask you that you bind the enemy and you release an anointing on this church as they go looking this week for places that they can pass out band-aids, that they can go to chaos, to darkness, confident of the truth that they bear inside of them. Give us words to testify to your story. Give us faith that you will make a way. And Lord Jesus, I pray all of these things in the holy and resurrected and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.